Hi, everybody, and welcome to a 4th of July special episode of the Lex Rex Institute podcast. Today, we're going to be celebrating our nation's independence. And we'll be talking about a number of independence-related subjects, including our Declaration of Independence and some things related to separation with Great Britain. We divided this episode into two parts. It did end up being way too long in our initial recording, so part one is going to be released on Sunday, July 3rd, and then you can listen to part two tomorrow on July 4th. So without further ado, David, you want to kick us off? Welcome to the Lecture Rex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Trussell, the lead writer for the Lecture Rex Institute. And I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush, president of the Lex Rex Institute, and of course, a constitutional attorney, although I will not be speaking in that capacity today. But the capacity that I will be speaking in is that of an American patriot and lover of our country <laughs> and appreciator of our founding fathers and everything else that goes along with that. All right. Before we begin, please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and any opinions expressed during this podcast are the opinions of those expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. The Lex Rex Institute, of course, is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit us online at www.lexrex.org. All right. Can we... Oh, and, and as always, Lex Rex is Latin for the law is king, because the the law's our only king, and everyone else in our country is subject to it, just as our founding fathers proudly declared on July 4th, 1776. Yeah. All right. Thank you. I literally could not hear myself speaking over that music, so thank you for killing that. Well, now let's play our intro. This is going to be all weird. That doesn't make any sense. Sure it does. Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, "We the people." See, this is go. normally this is normally where we would do the intro, but we've already done the intro. So now you, you see, what are we to do? Well, you could do it again if you want to. I don't. Let's just do the plugs, I guess. <laughs> um, All right. As you mentioned, time for some shameless plugs. Yeah, as you mentioned. Listeners can find our other content online at LexRex.org. We have a YouTube channel. You can check out our videos there. Those videos are generally also available on Vimeo and Rumble. And we recently opened the LexRex store. You can find that on our website as well. We have some t-shirts and some books on offer that are technically not purchases, but free gifts when you make a donation. So all of your donations are tax deductible still. Leave the IRS to us. And it, it came to my attention last week that a few people from out of state had tried to place orders with the Lex Rex Institute store and were told that, that items could not be shipped to their location. That has since been fixed. So if you tried to place an order last week, you can place it now and celebrate July 4th in style wearing one of our Lex Rex Institute t-shirts. Although this is coming out on the 4th, so you probably won't get it on time. But you can wear it for Constitution Day. All right, so we've got a ton to do. We're going to try to keep this thing under three hours, so we should probably just get straight to it. But in honor of Independence Day, we thought we'd begin with you know, a few reasons why you should be grateful to be an American and to be independent from the crown of Great Britain. Yeah, th this is sort of a sneak preview of a program that we're currently developing, which we're going to be calling move to Canada, question mark, because, you know, after every single election, there's always that group of people that says that, you know, if the guy I don't like gets in, I'm moving to Canada. Well, is that actually a viable option? So we're going to take a look at not just the laws of Canada, but the laws of a number of other nations that people will often suggest may be viable alternatives to the United States. And I guess, spoiler alert, they're really not. There is no alternative <laughs> to the United States. If, if you want liberty... This is pretty much your only place. I, you know, I'm not joking. David's laughing at that, but that's, yeah. Well, if you want structural safeguards on liberty, the U.S. Constitution is pretty much the only way in the world to get it. Yeah, but. So as a sneak preview of that program, we're going to be talking about some of the laws of Great Britain that the United States of America has that they do not, or vice versa. Yeah, most, mostly stuff that they do over in the U.K. that we don't do here. Um, to be fair, but yeah, let's get yeah, right one into popular it. option is always going to be one that's explicitly prohibited by Article One, Section Nine of our Constitution, which is the ever popular Bill of Attainder. 
So, so what's a bill of attainder, David? Probably not a lot of you are familiar with this term, or at least not, you know, such that you could confidently define one. But basically, a bill of attainder... And that's because you don't have to be, because they're <laughs> illegal here. Fair enough. Basically, a bill of attainder is a declaration of guilt and a punishment. So normally, punishment. okay, so most of our laws would say things like um, murder is illegal or stealing stuff is illegal. Most of our laws aren't going to say something like my co-host David Truschel is illegal. Yeah, so essentially a bill of attainder That is, would be a bill of attainder. <laughs> yeah, a bill of attainder is basically a verdict and a punishment in one that is coming directly from the legislature without benefit of trial. So, you know, parliament could pass a bill saying because you know, such and such a person is such a terrible person, did X, Y, and Z that we hate and was really bad. They are, you know, essentially a non-person now. They have no right to their property. Their yeah. heirs have no right to inherit their property. And they're banished from the UK or, you know, in some instances in the past, they're to be summarily executed. All this kind of stuff. It, do it doesn't necessarily even need to go that far. It's a bill of attainder purely if it names somebody by name as an act passed by the legislature to target a particular person. In the United States, you can only be found guilty and arrested if you are suspected of committing a crime of general applicability, something that if anybody else were to do it, it would be illegal for them to. They can't just come after you. Yeah. And yeah, so this is something that I think understandably was very unpopular in America at the time of... The War for Independence. And it's worth Especially noting... Especially when they kept doing it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's worth noting... You know, many, many of our founding fathers were subject of, to bills of attainder. Yeah. Worth noting that this is still technically... You know, there's nothing against Parliament doing this today in Britain. It hasn't been done in quite a long time. But, you know, I was doing some research on this topic. And at least as recently as World War II, they were seriously considering the use of bills of attainder. In that case, you know, particularly with captured enemy officers, that sort of thing. But it's still not a great look for... for well, and, and that's, you know, that, that demonstrates sort of the broader point that I was getting at when I said that America's the only free country. I think probably a lot of people heard that and they may have re reacted to that saying, that's not true. Other countries, they have, they're able to exercise the same basic liberties that we are, right? You know, they're not subject to all kinds of things. Yeah, that's true today. Most people are not constantly going to be subject to various kinds of abject tyranny. It's, it's not likely the British government's going to be passing bills of attainder against people. The difference between the United States and most other countries, and actually of Great Britain, a relatively free liberal society, is that in the United States of America, we don't have rights and liberties simply because people in our government choose to give them to us. Right. That is the way it works in Great Britain. The only reason they don't use these is because their parliament has chosen not to use them. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get into something more particular on that front in a bit. But So that's, that's number one on our list. Bills of attainder, constitutionally forbidden here, not so in Great Britain. And that brings us to our second difference between American and British law, which is general warrants, what are also known as writs of assistance. Yeah. This one was a particular... Well, not favorite, you know, whatever the opposite of a favorite is of the Founding Fathers. Cause I thought they were allowed to do these nowadays. Isn't that what happened to John Eastman the other day? <laughs> well, no, not quite. But that's, that's perhaps no? something for, you know, we can get more into that at a later date, perhaps. But <laughs> basically, a writ of assistance. Also, they, they were doing this, you know, I think debatably they... They tried to do this to John Eastman, but the difference is because these are outlawed here, we have legal recourse because they did try to do this to John Eastman the other day when they seized his cell phone without demonstrating probable cause. This was also, actually, this is pretty much the reason why NSA surveillance, bulk collection of data, was ruled to be unconstitutional a few years back was because that constituted a general writ. Yeah. Uh, or a writ, sorry, writ of assistant or a general warrant. So what is, what is a general warrant? or a writ of assistance, well, let's contrast it against what a general warrant isn't. In the United States, any warrant 
must issue on probable cause. In other words, there needs to be probable cause that a crime has been committed. And it must, with reasonable particularity, specify the things to be searched and the items to be seized. So a general writ's just the opposite of that. I keep saying general writ. General warrant or a writ of assistance is just the opposite of that. That's where they break into your house or come into your house and then <laughs> rifle through all of your papers and effects trying to find evidence of a crime. They don't have any specific crime that anyone's alleged for which there's probable cause. They just search your stuff generally. That was permitted in Great Britain. Still, I believe, technically is permitted in Great Britain. Although I think in 1979, there was an act of parliament that at the very least required the presence of a constable to be there, which, you know, whoop-de-doo, that's yeah. <laughs> a pretty paltry improvement. But this yeah. still goes on in Great Britain. If they think you've committed a crime, they can search through all your stuff and <laughs> try to find out if you have. Yeah, and both now and then, these were typically given to basically customs officials. So the, the general concept is that it's a way of searching for contraband. But obviously, without limitations, there's no reason it has to stop at that. And, you know, the way it worked, again, both now and then, was that a writ of assistance was just sort of the possession of an official. It wasn't limited to investigate a particular person or a particular, you know, alleged crime, nothing like that. Basically, you're in possession of this document. You can search homes, warehouses, businesses, you know, whatever you're interested in searching, basically, and look for whatever it is that you were interested in looking for. Doesn't need a court to authorize it. Doesn't need really practically anything other than, as you mentioned, since 1979, the police to be there. And again, this is, yeah. this is a, a pretty wild one too. Both now and then, these documents last until six months after the death of the king or queen who issued them. So <laughs> you could have this for decades and basically just have a I, free I think pass that once you've executed search. it once, it expires, right? I actually, I did not find that. That could be right. But okay. either way. I, I believe that once still... it's issued, it, it does still expire after it's been executed. But you could get these issued sort of preemptively, which is they yeah. would often do against people who are perceived to be enemies of the state, opponents of the state. And then you would just execute them at opportune times. Yep. And of course, they allow you to seize people's effects, too. So, you know, in modern context, you could see someone's computer, their their phone, like what happened to John Eastman, uh, really inhibit their ability to, to do their work. If the government doesn't like what they're doing, not a great thing for a government to do if you are a proponent of limited government. Yeah. And that's compounded by what I'll go ahead and take the liberty of saying will be the next item on our list, which is that Britain has very different rules pertaining to illegally obtained evidence than the U.S. does. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's difficult for evidence to even be illegally obtained there. So maybe, <laughs> maybe they don't really need robust rules about that. That's a joke. I mean, there is still yeah. illegally obtained evidence there. But in the United States, we have what's called the exclusionary rule, which says that uh, we exclude fruit of the poisonous tree is the expression that the Supreme Court uses. If the police violated your Fourth Amendment rights or Fifth Amendment rights in obtaining evidence, that evidence cannot be used against you in court. That evidence is excluded from court. You'll hear a lot of people complain about that, particularly in those procedural crime investigation dramas. They never, I, I really don't know what the goal of those shows is other than just to make people not care about criminal justice. But, but <laughs> you know, they'll often say, the guy got off on a technicality because it's not a technicality when somebody violates your rights in conducting a search. That is the law. You know, that's the Constitution. That law is more basic than whatever crime they were violating. It's... You know, debatably, the crime itself is more of a technicality than the Constitution. Yeah. And basically, the state of the law, as I understand it in the UK, currently there was a case that it was decided about this relatively recently, I think in 2003, called Jones v. University of Warwick, that basically determined the judge can choose to exclude evidence if it's obtained illegally, if he decides that its value is less than the, you know, the sort of the import of the crime, but you could choose not to. And importantly, basically your only remedy when something has been obtained from you illegally is that you could separately try to pursue civil penalties against whoever broke the law to obtain it. 
or maybe even get them convicted of a crime. But they can still use whatever they took from you illegally. You'll still be in jail. In court. Yeah. yeah. If they so, found evidence on you unlawfully, you'll still be in jail. So, so cold comfort yeah, there. I, I, guess, I guess you managed to hold them accountable for, for illegally obtaining the evidence, but doesn't do yeah, you much good at that point. About the extent to which, as you know, again, as far as I was able to determine, that they've you know gone to protect people from illegally obtained information, is to say that if they tortured you to get a confession or something like that, you can't use that confession in court. But that's about. Oh, gee, that's that seems to be the how, only how enlightened. Hard and fast. What a liberal society. <laughs> that seems to be the only real strong like line in the sand that's been drawn here. Yeah. So, see, in the United States, we say you can't be. Fifth Amendment says you can't be compelled to be a witness against yourself. We interpret that very liberally in the United States. You know, yeah. even being questioned without being read your Miranda rights is considered to be sufficient to show that you were compelled to give testimony against yourself. So. Yeah, yeah, that's a huge difference between us and virtually every other country. Yeah. On that front, on the front of Miranda rights, we, <laughs> I guess I want to take this opportunity to say we've been asked to cover the recent case of Vega v, uh, Vega, excuse me, Vega v Teco Tico. I'm not actually sure how he pronounces it, but it was a very important case that came down recently on Miranda rights. We will be covering that case. We have a lot of catch up to do after yeah. the last couple of weeks. So I, I do just want to say about that case before we move, we're going to address it at greater length later. That's what David's telling you. But I do want to say that was, there was a lot of bad reporting on that case. People reported that this diminished rights under Miranda that, you know, I guess suggesting that evidence could be used against you when it was obtained, uh, when you had not been fully Mirandized or when Miranda rights were violated, that is not true. What it did is it remedied the ability to seek civil redress for that. So yeah. the evidence is still excluded. That was never in question. But you can't necessarily, in all circumstances, sue the police and obtain a monetary recovery because they violated your rights on that. Yeah. But as you said, we'll be getting into that as well as some other cases. I know the recent... Or I guess not rights. The court said that, it, that, that despite being called Miranda rights, your Miranda rights are not rights. So that's... Yeah. We'll get into that in more detail on a different episode. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be covering that. We're going to be covering the recent case that came down on Medicare and hospital reimbursement. I forget the name of that one off the top of my head, but there and several others, I think, are also on our queue. All that to say, we've got a lot to talk about. We're going to try to catch up as best we can in the coming weeks. But also on So the, don't on, hold our silence against us, <laughs> is what we're saying. And also on that topic, let's talk for a minute about... Something that I actually learned through British police procedurals, they have a very different way of, you know, construing your rights as someone accused of a crime and as explaining those to you. So you're probably familiar with the way the Miranda rights go in the U.S. You know, they say, you know, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. That's not what they and, say. And this to be clear, that, that right to remain silent. So I think one of our hot takes... No, I don't think it was a hot take. I think I was just reading Twitter. Uh, but <laughs> basically, some, somebody was talking, and, and they said, oh, it was about John Eastman again. They said he, he, he uh, invoked his Fifth Amendment right. They said pled the Fifth, which is a phrase people use that irks me because you don't plead the Fifth Amendment. That's not a plea. But anyway, invoked his Fifth Amendment rights over 105 times in his deposition, and then they concluded he's definitely guilty. No, right to remain silent doesn't just mean that you don't have to answer the question. Right to remain silent means that can't be used as evidence against you. Yeah. If you are silent, they can't use that against you. So in Great Britain, the way it works, you have a right to remain silent, but anything you don't say can and will be used <laughs> against you. Yeah, specifically, and this is direct, you know, I confirmed this today. This is on, you know, gov.uk or whatever, you know, the, the main website for the UK government is. This is what they list as the police caution that you're supposed to be read. You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defense if you do not mention when questioned something which you later rely on in court. Anything you do say what? may be given this in evidence. <laughs> That's the most useless advice I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> Just so you're aware, there's some stuff you can do, but it, it's a good chance that it'll harm you if you do it. But yeah, you, you know, doing you could the stay quiet. Well, certainly harm you. So. Yeah. You could stay quiet, but if you don't say it now and then you tell the court about it, we're going to say, nah, he didn't say so. That's basically how it goes. <laughs> That's basically how it goes in Britain. Yeah. 
I just I, we made this clear from the outset, but just to be clear here, we're talking about Britain in part because you know we're independent from Britain now, and we we don't want to be subject to these laws, but also because Britain is a remarkably liberal society. You'd be hard pressed to find any country on earth that had more robust protections of people's rights than Great Britain. Yeah, and even they pale in comparison next to the United States. There really is no comparison to the United yeah. States Constitution. It's, you know, to quote Calvin Coolidge, it is the greatest political blessing that has ever been given to the human race to live underneath the United States Constitution. That's no joke. Yeah. All right, so, in you know, to this point, we've been talking sort of about very specific things about their justice system, about their system of law that are sort of problematic from an American point of view and things that we're afforded much greater protections. But there's also some just sort of fundamental facts about the way government works in the UK that, you know, we'll, well, we'll explain them and you, you'll yeah. probably see the issues. We've talked to you guys a lot about the idea of separation of powers and checks and balances. If you look at the rest of the countries in the world, they have at best a gutted form of that. In fact, our immediate model for separation of powers, so arguably the second best exemplar of separate powers is gonna be Great Britain. But then they've got a little thing called parliamentary supremacy. And this is actually debated, this is hotly debated. Uh, it, was, it had pretty much just come to a resolution in the period immediately before the American War of Independence. But basically what they say is, yeah, we have three separate branches. We have a king, we have a parliament, we have the courts. But really, we just have parliament. Parliament's yeah. in charge of the other ones. And, you know, we, we quote William Blackstone very, very favorably in a lot of our materials. And in, on many points of law, he is excellent. He is absolutely, because, you know, he's not trying to voice his opinions when talking about British law. He's trying to articulate the law as it actually stands. And he is absolutely a proponent and an expositor of the idea that the British Constitution guarantees parliamentary supremacy. So, David, tell us a little bit about what exactly is parliamentary supremacy? Well, on, a most, on the most sort of practical level, means that if parliament passes a law, it doesn't really matter what's in it. No one can say anything. Like, you know, no one can stop it from being regarded as the law. We've talked right, briefly which was before. not always true in Great Britain. Yeah. That was not always true. Yeah, we've, we've talked before on the podcast about the idea of the British Constitution, and we've alluded to the fact that a lot of what is traditionally regarded as the British Constitution is unwritten. There are, you know, some written documents that are a part of it, Magna Carta. But even then, they don't say this is a part of the English Constitution. No. It's, it's through the way it's been treated over the succeeding centuries that made it part of the British Constitution. Yeah, and by and large, the British Constitution is just sort of a set of traditional understandings of how the law works, of what your basic rights were. And, you know, for much of English history, judges would try to prevent other, you know, actors in the government from violating those rights. Uh, with the idea of parliamentary supremacy, judges cannot make a judgment as to the constitutionality of any act of parliament. If it's So Dr. Bonham's case would be unlawful if it were to come down today. <laughs> yeah. So One of the foundations of British and American law is no longer legally valid under the British common law system in, in Great Britain, as practiced in Great Britain. Yeah. So what, what they refer to as primary legislation sometimes, in other words, not, you know, a rule made by a, you know, a ministry of the government, but an actual act of parliament was voted on, you know, became law. That just goes, no matter what it says. So there are, you know, traditional protections in England for people who are accused of crimes. But if Parliament decided it didn't want those to exist anymore and could get the votes to pass a law saying they don't, that's it. No more protections. Yeah. They, they could overrule the, the English Bill of Rights if they wanted to. It, all yeah. it would take is a vote of Parliament to repeal the English Bill of Rights. Yep. If tomorrow they decided every house in London gets a wiretap and we're going to pass a law that says so, that's what would happen. You couldn't stop it. There would be we're, we're no longer just going to allow Protestants to inherit the throne. We're going to violate the English Bill of Rights, and we're going to allow <laughs> Roman Catholics to do it, too. They could do that. I'm not sure how many people are going to be up in arms about that one, but that's a fact. I don't mean too. it's particularly horrifying. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's obviously central to the English Constitution. You know, that was a provision that prevented 
bloody war that had been going on for the centuries prior. Yeah. Yep. No, and you could just do away with it in a strike of a stroke of a pen. Yep. And I guess that brings us to the fact and it's, that... Well, let, me, let me just... So, before we move on, if you studied English history, and in fact, the way that Lex Rex Institute talks about English history, you'll know that really since Magna Carta, going on through certainly the English Civil War, through the Glorious Revolution, there was really a struggle to assert the rights of Parliament at all. You know, the king was, dis- yeah. was regarded as being supreme over the English realm, and Parliament really had to assert its rights. We're all in favor of that. We believe absolutely in the rights of Parliament. It's just, it's, you know, it's kind of crazy to me. It seems nuts that you just say the problem was apparently specifically the king being in charge, because now that this other group is, it's fine. Yeah, no, it's it's fine to have... You would think it'd be both groups asserting their rights against each other. You would think so, but basically no. I guess that's and, too uh, American to me. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of, you know, leads us into what... Well, there's a, there's a, um, a quotation from, a, not a great movie, but it's called The, the Patriot. It's a Mel Gibson movie. Only reason yeah. I say it's not great is it's pretty historically inaccurate. It's, it's actually pretty fun. Mm. But, <laughs> but there's, there's a scene where he says, why, why would I replace one tyrant across the Atlantic with a group of tyrants here? Well, mm. what, the, what the writer of that movie didn't know is that Great Britain ostensibly had actually already done that. They'd replaced one tyrant with a group of tyrants already. And, and that was actually... You know, we'll get into that a little bit later in this episode when we talk about the Declaration of Independence, but there's a reason it was written to King George, and it's not because King George was the big boss man. Big boss yep. man was actually Parliament. We just so strongly disliked the fact that Parliament was regarded <laughs> as the big boss man, despite the fact that we had never agreed to any of them, that we said, no, we're not even going to address them in our letter. Yeah, and that's, that's probably a good segue into the fact that, as it stands, in large part because the you know, the sort of the party of parliamentary supremacy ultimately won out. That's, you know, the official theory these days. It's called the Whig Party. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's what it's actually called. That's not yeah. a joke. I, I know, but that's, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't mean the literal political party. I meant the faction oh. <laughs> that advocated for it, it, which, you know, has... Yeah, well, Whiggism is basically the idea of parliamentary supremacy. Yeah. Fair enough. In but, my view, that's people will disagree with me on that, but I think that's the defining characteristic of Whiggism. Yeah, but as a result, the present state of the UK government is what could charitably dis- be described as organized chaos, and more realistically, just kind of chaos. Because while have you ever watched their House of Commons? That's a fair point. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not even wasn't even talking about that, but that is a very fair point. Yes. While, you know, there are certain vestiges of the idea that the, you know, the monarchy still has a real part to play in government, you know, constitutionally, the king or queen could still refuse to give assent to laws, you know, has... Well, that's the thing. It's not entirely clear what the king or queen could do. Yeah. We know that they haven't, in many decades at this point, really taken an active part in party politics. But, you know, the government is still referred to as Her Majesty's Government, in theory, the prime minister is the prime minister to the queen. You know, there are remnants of, of you know, the, the functioning of the monarch as a real executive. But it's, it's yeah, they've really emasculated their monarchy. It's, it's got all of the same, you know, they say the same stuff about it. But yeah. it doesn't, uh, it's fairly impotent at this point. Yeah, well, and... As a result, you know, because it used to be that the prime minister was, you know, selected by the king or queen, the... Still is in theory. It's just the the queen always gives her assent. (laughs) In practice nowadays, basically, if one party wins a majority in parliament, their leader, you know, whoever that may be, becomes the prime minister. You don't elect a prime minister in the UK. People complain all the time about the U.S. presidential system where, you know, they don't like the Electoral College. They feel like they're not directly electing the president. You don't elect the prime minister whatsoever in the U.K. You elect a party. You actually elect no one. You vote for parties. You just vote for a party. The party then apportions its seats. And if one of them has sort of a, a relatively clear mandate, you know, if one party has 
really any amount over 50% of the seats, their leader becomes prime minister. If they have to form a coalition with another party, which is very common, they just sort of work it out behind closed doors. Somebody becomes prime minister. Yeah. Then the prime because minister... it's voting by parties, they don't. So people, you know, like to bemoan the two-party system we have here, and that's sort of a consequence of the fact that we have winner-take-all systems and vote yeah. for candidates. I don't want to get too much into that today, but that's very much a consequence of that. In yeah. Great Britain, they have neither winner-takes-all nor do they vote for candidates. They vote by essentially vote by lists. They vote for parties. Yeah. And then and that party's list of candidates is appointed to parliament based on how what proportion of the vote that party received. It's how far you get down the list. So yeah. they end up getting very, very often split governments where they have to divide into factions. You don't have any one party that's in charge. Now, I have my criticisms of the two-party system, certainly. It's a lot better than the one that Great Britain uses. And again, I want to remind you guys, this system that Great Britain employs was the best the world had known at yep. the time that our constitution was written. Yep. It's the best they'd ever known. Every one of our founding fathers agreed that the English constitution was the best system the world had ever known. Even Thomas Jefferson, who famously was very sympathetic to France, uh, didn't want to partner too closely with Great Britain. Even Thomas Jefferson recognized that the English system of government was the most free the world had ever known. And then look at what we've just shown you in comparison to the United States of America. Yeah. That's just a start. Yeah, and there's, there's all kinds of craziness that goes with this. Like, for instance, until 2011, there was no actual set date for new elections to parliament. The way it worked was, you know, at least once in five years, you had to have an election. But beyond that, it was up to basically Parliament itself because they could force a new election with a vote of no confidence or just sort of the prime minister saying, you know what, we don't seem to have a popular mandate anymore. We're going to dissolve this current government by which they, you know, you basically mean the prime minister in the cabinet and we'll just have a new election. And that's when you vote for Parliament in 2011. It's like trying to deal, you know, it's like trying to deal with an organization with no bylaws. I don't, yeah. you know, you're, you're not a lawyer, David, but... I'm any, familiar with bylaws. Any lawyer listening to this podcast has <laughs> probably groaned when I said you're dealing with an organization with no bylaws because you go in, you don't know how it's supposed to work. They don't know how it's supposed to work. All they can do is tell you the way they've done it in the past, and usually people remember that differently. Yeah. Well, in, so in 2011, they actually passed a law that would set fixed dates for elections, and earlier this year, they repealed it. So it lasted about a decade. <laughs> And now it's Why'd back they to, I, you know, I didn't find a definitive answer to that. I'm guessing it's probably some combination of people grumbling that this isn't the way they used to do it and someone feeling like it wasn't working for whatever reasons, whether that's because, uh -huh. you know, the public didn't want to vote on a fixed schedule or, you know, who knows, basically. But, you know, you don't actually know when your next election is going to be if you live in the UK. Could yeah. be tomorrow, as far as you know. Yeah. No, there, there is, a, you know, I, it may sound funny. There is one free society on earth, if you mean legally free, yeah. where our rights do not flow from anyone's whim. They aren't subject to anyone's discretion. You get them whether or not somebody else agrees with you. And that's the United States of America. If yeah. we lose it here, it exists nowhere. Yeah. And, you know, that's hopefully we've been clear enough about this in our past episodes and in other material. We hope that you're watching, reading, you know, paying attention to the other stuff we put out because we stand by it. But if there's one thing that we as an organization really want to emphasize to the American public, it's that the structural elements of the American Constitution are really what make the difference. Not, you know, the rights that are in the Bill of Rights. Other countries have similar things to that. Not in practice, what we do, there are plenty of countries where, you know, for the most part, your day-to-day -day life is unlikely to be strongly affected by tyranny, but it's almost always precarious in other systems. Yeah. And the U.S. Yeah, we, really, we have the longest-lived constitution in the world. Yeah. By far. The average, yeah. we mentioned this on the episode where we interviewed Zachary Jones, but the, the average life of a constitution is 17 years. That's not, it's not even old enough to vote in the <laughs> United States. Yeah. And the durability of the US Constitution, I think, is one of the main, you know, testaments to its usefulness, its flexibility, its solidity. But it's also just, you know, 
there's a lot of careful thought that went into it. A lot of very prudent people spent a very long time working out its issues, working out a workable system. And we've really enjoyed the fruits of that for, you know, nearly two and a half centuries at this point. Yeah. So if assuming you're listening to this on the 4th of July, I know that you're going to go to your barbecues and you're going to watch your fireworks and all. That's great. I strongly encourage that. You know, that was actually, that was recommended by John Adams himself, except he said it about <laughs> July 3rd, but because he thought that's the date they would celebrate it. But he said there ought to be fireworks every 4th of July, 3rd of July. But <laughs> so yeah, by all means, I encourage that. But please take a moment and remember the blessings of liberty that our republic gives us that are unique to this nation and to no other. It's a uniquely privileged thing to live in the United States of America. And with that said, let's get into, you know, as we mentioned, we've got a ton to do today. We're probably going to have a ton to do next week as well. We do want to give an update on one piece of news that we covered previously. Those of you who listened to our early episodes probably remember the case was called Kennedy v. Bremerton School District. It's a First Amendment freedom of religion case yeah one of the blessings of liberty right there free free exercise of religion yeah and the great britain has free exercise of the protestant religion (laughs) yeah no that's they also have a right to bear arms for protestants although i think they took that one away yeah i don't think there is a generally recognized (laughs) right to that that's in their bill of rights the english bill of rights though does recognize that but i think parliament took it away but anyway (laughs) kennedy v bremerton yeah. was the case that we brought up about a month ago now, maybe two months ago, where a high school football coach had been praying on the field, and the question was whether or not this was a violation of the Establishment Clause or whether or not he was protected by the free exercise of religion and free speech. Yeah. And the court passed down a ruling on that. I think that was last Monday. Is that right, David? That would have been uh, I believe June that's 27th? June 27th, yes. So that would be Monday of last week when you're listening to this. And when we first covered this, we predicted that the court would side with Kennedy, the coach in question. That is what happened. But there's, you know, sort of two things we want to cover here. It's a much more significant opinion than that, though. This is, uh, yeah, a couple of big things going on. Neil Gorsuch ended up writing the opinion. He's been vocally critical of the lemon test in the past. We've mentioned previously the lemon test was that test that was applied for establishment clause issues, several prongs to that. You know, it's the can't have excessive entanglement. uh, It can't advance or inhibit the cause of religion. Don't want to get at all those today, but you don't want to speak too soon here because it's been killed before. (laughs) <laughs> but it would appear the lemon test has finally been overruled. Yeah, at, at the very least, that's certainly the way the dissenting justices took it and certainly the way the press has been reporting it. Unlike in the Dobbs opinion, which explicitly said, we are overruling the precedents in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, Justice Gorsuch didn't say that. He didn't say outright we are overruling lemon but functionally which with lemon that's been a bit of a problem in the past because (laughs) you know as justice scalia liked to say justices have driven their pens through its heart before and it seems to come back the next term every single time yeah he compared it to a ghoul in a late night horror movie (laughs) you know it's it's dead yeah or is it exactly so it may come back again. I hope not. I hope that's gone forever. People have not liked Lemon for decades at this point. It needs to be done. But, but it's yeah, it's um, it, it's proven to be unworkable, really. Like it's just it it doesn't actually accomplish much of anything. It's sort of just something that people look at a case and they say, Well, that seems wrong, so we'll say it failed Lemon, basically. So what's the new test? What do we get instead in Bremerton? Well, in essence, and, you know, I'll, I'll give my gloss on this because there's been some expression of confusion and doubt as to what was meant by this, but I think it's, reading between the lines, I think it's pretty plain. But basically, Justice Gorsuch's opinion, the, the opinion of the court, said that we need to analyze 
free exercise clause issues in terms of the history and tradition that are behind them. As I read it, I you know, we haven't talked about this prior, but the way I read it is he's basically just saying this is a common law issue. You know, we look yeah. at, at things that have been regarded as violations of this in the past on clear reasoning. Yeah. Not and on to, to his credit, he avoids language like strict scrutiny. Yeah. I, I think it's it's very close, it's similar to a strict scrutiny analysis, but he's not a big fan of those balancing tests. A lot of why we like him here at the Lex Rex Institute. He's been probably a more vocal opponent of those than anybody else in the court right now. Yeah. And so he doesn't use one. He says that the rights that Kennedy was exercising sure look a whole heck of a lot like religious liberty rights, free speech rights. And significantly, he says that because what Mr. Kennedy was doing, I think his name is Joseph Kennedy, same as John F. Kennedy. <laughs> I think band. that's right, but uh, I wouldn't but, swear to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I made a joke about being a bootlegger last time, so that would probably yeah. be Joseph Kennedy. But yeah. uh, he says that these rights, because it involves both free speech, obviously prayer in a public context, is going to be free speech as well as expression of your religion, free exercise of your religion. And what Gorsuch says is a point that's been alluded to several times by justices before, uh, significantly in the Employment Division v. Smith case. Justice Scalia refers to what he calls hybrid rights, where he says that heightened scrutiny may be appropriate for free exercise claims. Here, Justice Gorsuch explicitly acknowledges and codifies in law the idea that you do indeed have heightened protections when two separate rights are implicated, in this case, free speech and free exercise. Yeah. That is hugely significant for many of Lex Rex's cases. Mm -hmm. In fact, we have a complaint that we're working on that we intended to file last week, but through a series of happenstance, ended up not getting filed. Well, it's a great thing that it didn't because now we can put this case front and center in our brief. And (laughs) I think we stand a dang good chance of success on that one because it's it couldn't be clearer in this opinion so i'm very happy about it yeah so that's probably in terms of the precedent to be derived from this case that's probably the most important thing here it's that you know dual protection idea you know but the other sort of major issue that i wanted to delve into on this is something that cropped up both in the dissent and in the press that you know the, the the coverage of this case, but it it raises, oh the coverage has been horrible. Yeah, it ra- <laughs> it raises an important issue because basically a both lot of the, misinformation out there. Yeah, both the dissent and the commentary on it from the media have revolved around the idea that oh you know the the opinion of the court mischaracterized the facts of this case, and so they're saying you know oh that you know the the opinion writes about it in this one way says that, you know, oh, is this quiet I, prayer? I love the way, yeah. So, so yeah, I guess, I guess first, David, play out sort of what that, that, fa- that alleged factual misrepresentation is. And then yeah. I really want to read what Justice Sotomayor had to say because I thought it was very, very funny. Maybe you guys will agree with me, I don't know. But <laughs> yeah. what, what is that factual contradiction? So basically, you know, the, the facts that the court relied on in reaching its opinion were that there had been this practice whereby this coach would go to midfield after the end of the game and pray. And sometimes he was joined by players from his team, sometimes by players from the other team or coaches from the other team, et cetera. And the school district warned him about this. He agreed to stop doing it and only pray by himself while the team was otherwise busy or, you know, just make sure students weren't with him. And so they complained. He says, I'll stop doing it. Yeah. And, you know, I'll do this other thing instead, you know. And those are the facts that were relied upon by the court. Those are the facts that are in the record. Now, people... As far as I could tell, nothing contradicted that. They just had additional facts. Yeah, and the the thing that has been, like, a very big sticking point, evidently, is that, you know, people are saying, well, but he went and he talked to the media about it, so he publicized this issue that he had with the district, and oh <laughs> okay i see so the media's the media's angle on this has been that wasn't a private prayer at all that was a public prayer because he yeah. went public about it yeah and in- who's on first right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we talked about this before about people's for whatever reason the words public and private seem to confuse a lot of people yeah they can be used in more than one sense 
Absolutely. <laughs> so when we, when we refer to a private expression of religion, we're referring to somebody who usually holds some kind of public office or acts in some kind of public capacity. And when we refer to a private expression, what we mean is that person is not acting within that capacity. They're acting within their private capacity. We don't mean yeah. they're being real secret about it. We don't mean they're hiding <laughs> it from people. Yeah, it doesn't cease to be private just because other people know that you're doing it. <laughs> you know, like, no, presumably, that's not the sense of private that we're using here. It's, <laughs> you know, presumably plenty of politicians in the U.S., have private religious lives of various kinds. That doesn't mean that, you know, when the president goes to church or prays at night, that that is a public act when he does it. Very similarly, just because this guy was a public employee does not mean that he was doing something public just because other people could see him do it. It's not in his public capacity. Right. The fact that, you know, one sense of public, yeah, that's public because people can see it, you know, like a like a public restroom. It's different from a private restroom because it's in the presence of other people. Yeah. So yeah, he was public in that sense. But in the sense of, was he acting in a public capacity? Absolutely not. I mean, really, this is sort of like a who's on first routine. Yeah. We're using two different senses of who. Exactly. Two different senses of public. That's, I, yeah. I don't think that was Justice Sotomayor's mistake, but that was no. certainly, we looked at a Vox article. Uh, yeah. do, you, do you have any excerpts from that Vox article, David? Because that was certainly the mistake they made. Yeah, so let's uh, let's hit that real quick. And I thought this was an irony because, you know, they, they published this article basically saying, oh, the Supreme Court just, you know, struck a blow against the separation of church and state by lying. All this stuff. And we'll get into... Yeah, they lied about the facts of the case because this was not a private expression of prayer. This guy went on the radio and he was like a famous pastor where... Yeah. Or not pastor, but like famous... You know, I think they called him like the the prayer coach guy, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and they're saying the fact that he was being uh, very showy and flashy about all this should make him lose. Yeah. And the court well, didn't even talk about it. So and we'll, we'll, know, get, we'll, we'll get into why there's a, 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 you know, a legal error in that reasoning in a minute. And, you know, that will also Yeah, that's when we to, look at when we look at Justice yeah. Sotomayor's opinion. We'll exactly. get into that. I want to talk about just the. Yeah. But, <laughs> but so in. Yeah, so basically they said, well, if he really wanted this to be private, he shouldn't have gone and talked about it. That makes it not private. And then, you know, they cite this very one particular silly. instance. That's a very silly thing to say. That's, yeah, they, they cite a particular instance. That's an Abbott instance. and Costello routine. Yeah, they cite one instance <laughs> where after the game, a bunch of people came out of the stands and joined him on the field, apparently because they'd heard about his case and wanted to show solidarity with him. And so they're, you know... They're arguing, and I think this came up also in, in Justice Sotomayor's dissent, although I, I could be misremembering that. They said that made it not private either because other people, not students, not members of the team, but like parents and people from the community came out and joined him. That made it not private either. That's nonsense too, but I'll, I'll, yeah, quote, I'll quote this Vox, Vox article because it gives its own, you know, it, it contradicts itself if it just, you know, it doesn't seem to be aware of that fact, but it does ruin its own argument by saying things like I, this. You know what I think happened? And just keep this in mind when David reads his quotation here. I think somebody wrote an entire article talking about why this decision was terrible for establishment clause issues in the country. I think that person then consulted with somebody who knows a little bit more about how rulings work and how the law works. And that person informed them that, no, it does yeah. not have that effect. <laughs> well, so yeah. they added a sentence or two at the end to... Yeah, so this is you know <laughs> to completely I'm, change I'm the meaning of the a article. a few paragraphs in between here, but it's substantively the same. We'll just give you the sort of the beginning and the end, and you'll see where it was going. They say, again, if the facts of this case resembled the facts laid out in Gorsuch's opinion, then Gorsuch would have a point. Public school employees may engage in private acts of devotion, such as saying a prayer over their lunch in a school cafeteria while they are on the job. But there's nothing private about a school employee conducting a media tour, touting his plans to pray at the 50-yard line of a football field immediately after a game. That's the problem we talked about, not understanding yep. what public means, but go on. <laughs> yeah, there is nothing private about the coach carrying out that plan, especially when he does so surrounded by kneeling players, cameras, and members of the public. And then they, you know, members of the public, even. Yeah, <laughs> that must be public. And then this is, the, I, if I remember correctly, this is literally how the article ends. Kennedy, by which you mean, you know the case, not the man, will no doubt inspire other teachers and coaches to behave similarly to Coach Kennedy, but those teachers and coaches will do so... I would have called so, it Bremerton. 
Yeah. Those teachers and coaches will do so at their own peril. Gorsuch's opinion doesn't weigh whether a coach is allowed to do what Kennedy actually did. That remains an open question because the court did not actually decide that case. And that, that should lead us into the other issue here, but I want to take a moment and just reflect on that. They're saying the opinion... Oh, David, terms, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Please stop it with the studio laugh track. I can't stand this. Anyway, but it's important. You know, I want to take a minute to, to reflect on that, what was just said. They say... On its own terms, assuming the facts are as the opinion states them, and we'll get into that then more in a second. Then it's rightly decided. <laughs> then it, there is nothing wrong with the opinion. It didn't actually do anything to upset establishment clause. Well, it just protected someone expressing. Rulings, so rulings apply to future cases with similar facts. Yeah. And that doesn't mean facts as they may actually be in some magical realm where people know what the facts are. That means facts as they were established by the court. Yeah. And so this isn't going to apply to cases that may be similar to what actually, in fact, happened to Kennedy. Yeah. This is going to apply to cases that are similar to the fact as alleged by the court. Yeah. And So really what they're moaning about here is the fact that one guy gets to continue to exercise his religion. Yeah, but better that... When maybe he personally shouldn't. Yeah, better that thousands be unable to legitimately express their religious feelings than that one man inappropriately be allowed to do so that's how that saying goes right i think that's yeah that's, that's right is. i think that's right <laughs> anyway, that leads us into, maybe in canada maybe in great britain <laughs> that leads actually us, that is pretty much how it works in canada but yeah more so keep, keep your eyes open for that move to canada yeah, move series to canada. by the way that's going to be coming out soon anyway that, that, that kind of leads so, us though into sotomayor's descent yeah. and the the sort of more legal errors that yeah, this is, I, I wanted to read this, this one because I found this kind of amusing. But what sure. she has to say in her dissent is the court also ignores, so, okay, just to give you a little bit of context, she was less concerned with what is basically a blatant misunderstanding of the use of the word public and was more concerned with the fact that the, the uh, coaches, so Kennedy's activities were disruptive of the school's activities. She thought that because she thought you should apply a balancing test, you should balance the interests of the school against the, his first amendment right to free speech and free exercise of religion. And then specifically, you know, the way that the consequentialist or judicial realist wing of the court, so that's, a, that's the wing of which Sotomayor is a part, the way that they view establishment clause versus free speech rights to work is that essentially the two counterbalance each other. Yeah. You should have free exercise of religion up to a point at which it starts to look like the state is endorsing a particular religion. And she thought that whether or not his activities were disruptive of what the school was accomplishing affected whether or not the school would be endorsing his statements. Because if it did disrupt their activities, well, then they'd to, to let him do it, they'd have to specifically be saying, yeah, that's good. That's a good thing for him to do. Therefore, it hinged on that for her. Yeah. And what she had to say was, the court also ignores the severe disruption to school events caused by Kennedy's conduct, viewing it as irrelevant because the Bremerton School District stated that it was suspending Kennedy to avoid being viewed as endorsing religion. Under the court's analysis, presumably this would be a different case if the district had cited Kennedy's repeated disruptions of school programming and violations of school policy regarding public access to the field as grounds for suspending him. As the district did not articulate those grounds, the court assesses only the district's establishment clause concerns. It errs by assessing them divorced from the context and history of Kennedy's prayer practice. Yeah, um. yeah you know... Maybe it would have gone differently if they looked at different yep. facts. That's sort of how this whole thing works. Yeah. And that's you need to raise those if you want the court to consider those different facts. That's why you hire lawyers. If your lawyers don't raise those facts, the court doesn't yeah. consider I, them. I, and significantly, we've mentioned this in past podcasts too. When you appeal a case, the appellate court considers legal issues de novo. So what are the legal issues in this case? Whether or not he was exercising his religion, whether or not he's protected by the First Amendment, whether or not uh, this constitutes an established religion, those are all legal issues. Factual issues are what Justice Sotomayor is talking about here, whether or not this was disrupting school activity, whether how people perceived what he was doing, 
all of these relevant considerations may well make the legal issues come out differently because the court's looking at different yep. facts. So that's how they view legal issues. Factual issues on appeal are not reviewed de novo. The review standard for, uh, did I define de novo? De novo means as if it's brand new, as if it's yeah. the first court looking at it. So they review legal issues as though they're the very first court to look at it. Um, there's no deference to the lower court on those. Just the opposite for factual matters. Extreme deference is paid to the lower court because lower courts have juries, juries of your peers. And juries of your peers are assessed to be better finders of fact than judges in our system. So no, they don't review factual findings de novo. They review factual findings for plain error. And even then, they don't review factual findings unless one side or the other asks them to review factual findings. Here, both sides thought the legal issues were dispositive. There was no reason yeah. to review the facts. And so what Justice Sotomayor is saying is like, oh, yeah, this case may have come out differently if it were a completely different case. <laughs> and for that reason, I disagree yeah, with the majority. Pretty, pretty much exactly. Yeah, yeah, it may well have. It may well have come out differently and if it were a different case. But it isn't a different yeah. case. It's so this case. One of the running threads in this case has been this sort of half-hearted attempt on the part of the school district's representation to say, well, you know, they said it was about endorsement of religion, but actually, you know, what they really meant, even though they didn't say it, was that they were concerned about students being coerced into some kind of religious display. You, you can't just insert your own factual yeah. findings like that. You didn't cross-examine the witnesses. You didn't look yeah. at the and evidence. That's been what a lot, you know, from, from what I can tell, that's sort of become the party line for the media and for people in the government who are, you know, critical of this ruling to cast it as, oh, the schools, you know, or rather the court said you can coerce kids into religion as long as, you know, blah, 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 whatever, because Supreme Court bad. But I find it very amusing, honestly. That's like, it's such a funny thing to do, to disagree with the yeah. majority opinion. And the reason you disagree is because, well, yeah, but... If the facts were different, the court yeah. should have found differently. But the facts weren't yeah, different, and, so uh, it didn't. And to, to I make disagree. It clear, you know, when we say facts in this context, we're talking about the facts on the record. We're not, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to stake a claim to say I know exactly what happened in actuality. I don't think you would do that either. Exactly. You can't. You were not. The, you didn't sit through a week of of trial. I, I don't know if this actually yeah. went to trial or not. But if it didn't go to trial, it's because they stipulated to those facts. Both sides agreed the facts were yeah. whatever they were, and then it got appealed that way. So either there was a group, you know, there's a group of 12 guys that sat there and watched while people talked about what exactly had happened, and then they made a determination on that, or neither side disagreed about what had happened, and they yeah. just stipulated to it. Either way, well beyond the purview of a judge right. to question and, you those know, facts. Had a, you know, a public employee, in fact, coerced in some way a bunch of students into, you know, a, a religious exercise? Yeah, that probably, yeah. That, that should that, come that out differently. A, you should yeah, you protect shouldn't. that. You know, <laughs> free exercise no. also means you can't be coerced into, uh, you know, any religious activities that you don't want to, to partake in. So, David, I guess you have to dissent <laughs> from the majority opinion on this because that's what the dissent says, is that if the facts had been different, then the outcome should have been different. Yeah. That's, she, she flat out says, the court ignores the severe disruption caused by Kennedy's conduct that Bremerton didn't yeah. talk about. And, you know, it's... <laughs> so, I guess you're compelled to disagree yeah, with the majority it's, opinion, It's ultimately, David. I think, a misunderstanding, <laughs> you know, it, to an amusingly, you know, high degree for someone who's actually on the court of what the court is supposed to do in these kind of instances. But anyway, I, I did. Which, which actually, and it's, you know, you guys probably, most of you are probably in, are not familiar with the last maybe century really of jurisprudence on establishment clause free exercise issues. But what this shows is that this case was basically a given even to the justices who wanted to disagree with yeah. the outcome on it. That was far from a given 30 years ago, even less of a given 20, 30 years before that. I mean, really, this has come a long way yeah. on religious rights. 
Oh, last issue I wanted to talk about on this before we move on is the the other thing people have been talking about is how this decision erodes or, or eviscerates the separation of yeah. church and state. <laughs> so I just wanted to explain briefly, we can get into more depth about what church and state separation is in a future podcast, but just briefly I wanted to explain church and separation of church and state refers to the institutional yeah. separation of the institutional church from the institutional yeah. state. There is a wall of separation between those things. That's exactly what the religious tests clause of the Constitution has to do with. It's that you can't have any official yeah. religion in this yeah. country. And I think people have sort of lost sight of that in part because we take that so much for granted. But bear in mind, we were, you know, as we, you know, we mentioned, remember the context is America separating itself, you know, declaring itself independent from Britain. And in Britain, the crown is also the head of the official church. The king or queen of Britain is the supreme yeah. governor. The House of Lords has has bishops and archbishops in it from the Church of England. It's to required day, to have them yeah, to as To this members. day, there are bishops of the Church of England yeah. who have an official part in the UK government. Granted, a much diminished part from what it used to be, but still an official part. And the that is not a separate no. church and state. They have a combined church and state. We have totally institutionally separate church and state. In fact, government can't even tax churches. And that's and how separate they are. To confuse that for the separation of what you know we may more loosely call religion and politics. Religion and politics. Is a com- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I think yeah. that's really yeah. what that's they mean. That's a completely different concept. <laughs> yeah. We will, you know, we will probably talk more about that at, at you know at length later. That could be its yeah, own episode. It, it probably. Yeah, it, that it, could be a whole episode. But I did want to, because I'm sure you guys have read the headlines talking about how this eviscerates separation of church and state. It has absolutely nothing to do with separation of church and yeah, state. That's and, just and not about that, that. And I want to quote part of the opinion of the court. I think it, it you know, sort of encapsulates that pretty well. And as far as, you know, I, I think we should move on after that. But so th- this is from the opinion of the court as penned by Justice Gorsuch. He says, the absence of evidence of coercion in this record leaves the district to its final redoubt. Here, the district suggests that any visible religious conduct by a teacher or coach should be deemed, without more and as a matter of law, impermissibly coercive on students. In essence, the district asks us to adopt the view that the only acceptable government role model for students are those who eschew any visible religious expression. If the argument sounds familiar, it should. Really, it is just another way of repackaging the district's earlier submission that government may script everything a teacher or coach says in the workplace. The only added twist here is the district's suggestion not only that it may prohibit teachers from engaging in any demonstrative religious activity, but that it must do so in order to conform to the Constitution. That really sums up the, like, you know, that completely erroneous view of the separation of church and state that we were just talking about. Yeah. He says that very well. Yeah, so the, very, people who have the idea that separation of yeah. church and state means that no one affiliated with the government can give any visible expression, any noticeable sort of sign that they have religious convictions, that's completely wrong. That's just flat out false. There's actually a different word for that, and it's not separation of church and state. It's called yeah. state secularism. Yeah. And there yeah. are countries so that have that. when we do move to France... We're not we one of move them. to France. We can talk about that and the concept that they call. Yeah, we can have a ten-day work week. <laughs> the concept that the French call laicity is a very different thing, and it's basically the position that the government has an official religion and it's secularism. That is not what we have in America. Yeah. Yeah, that's they do not have separation of church and state at all. There, they have states. I mean, it's like when uh, when Notre Dame. I can't believe I said Notre Dame. <laughs> when Notre Dame burned down a few years back. And I was, you know, I was looking at the news reports on that. Why the heck was the government of France responsible for the Notre Dame church? Oh, because they nationalized yep. all church land. Yep. <laughs> that would not happen here. We, that is not what separation of church and state means. In fact, that isn't even remotely right. separate. Yep. No, that. State secularism yeah. is a very different thing from separation of church and state. I, I know that a lot of folks who claim to be pro-constitution, pro-constitutional rights. They'll they'll decry, they don't like the idea of separation of church and state. They say that it's not good. I, I don't think they understand what separation of church and yeah. state refers to. 
When Thomas Jefferson, in Letter to the Danbury Baptist, referred to a wall of separation between church and state, he meant institutionally yeah. speaking. And, you know, this... The state can't nationalize church lands. Of, the church can't demand that its bishops and archbishops yeah, be in Congress. I think a huge piece of context there that's probably unlikely to be appreciated nowadays is that Baptists in England were legally disadvantaged for being Baptists for a very long time. They weren't part of the official church, the Church of England. They were what well, was called nonconformists. Lots of other people were too. And they had legal disadvantages imposed on them, couldn't you know, be in parliament, couldn't have, you know, all kinds of things. For a long time, they were taxed extra. And, and so he was assuring that. them. And he know, knew what he their concerns them, were. We're not going to do that here. We're not going to make you join a given church. You can keep doing your thing and we won't interfere with it. That was what the, the real thrust was. Right. Anyway. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So that we have no reason to dislike separation of church and state. That's a great thing. It protects both the state yeah. and the church. Because I'm sure that, you know, regardless of what your religion is, I'm sure that you don't want somebody else's religion getting special protections. So, anyway. You know, that's how we got yeah. a lot of wars in Europe. Anyway, as you said, that could be its whole own episode. And before we get too deep into that, we should probably just move on. But. Yeah. Just, there's, just there were never wars of religion. Just FYI. You know, if you weren't aware of that, people never fought each other because they had different religions. They fought each other because the state gave certain religions yeah, special privileges. So it was, it was always it was always about the laws. It was never about religion because yeah. no religion compels that. The Lex Rex Institute Fourth of July special will be concluded in part two. Join us tomorrow to conclude this presentation.